Welcome to Creekside Church this morning. It's great to see everyone here. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I am super excited to see sunshine this weekend. Seems like it's been, it's been a long time. And I, I don't put any stock in the groundhog, but he does predict an early spring. So that is a, that's something, I guess. Let's go ahead and stand up and uh, let's just open our time in, in prayer together. Asking God to prepare our hearts uh, to worship him. Father, it is a, it's a beautiful thing um, to come together with the people of God and to sing praises to Jesus, our Savior. Lord, we, we admit that we are uh, weak people. We come uh, in each, each time with distractions and burdens and things that are on our heart. And we just ask you, God, to help clear those things away, help us to Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, may you just uh, dwell the praises of your people uh, this morning, God. Uh, cause our hearts to worship you in spirit and in truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. these verses from Psalm 16. These were an encouragement to me uh, this week. Psalm 16, starting in verse 8, says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, just that phrase in verse 8, that because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. You know, that's why we sing and we, and we uh, praise and we come with joy and thanksgiving um, that, that with God at our right hand, uh, we will not be shaken. take us into the Word, I have a little bit of an announcement to make. Uh, first of all, I was asked to make this announcement. We want to congratulate the, the Wallers, uh, Bradley and Dr. Bradley and Emily had a new baby boy, Matthias, was born Thursday morning early, and uh, the backstory to that was that they were both here helping with Awana on Wednesday night, and they were gathered in the back talking to Holly Grubb and my wife, and Holly was uh, expounding to them about a calf that was about to be born at the Grubb farm, and uh, so the, this got Holly talking about birthing and uh, about a calf and about the need to be prepared, and so Holly asked Emily, do you have a bag packed? Because Emily is not, was not due to give birth until a month, the end of this month. And Holly says, you need to get a backpack because you just never know. Well, she was, Emily was starting to have contractions during this discussion. And so uh, we, we're, blaming, we're blaming Holly on the early delivery 
of little Matthias. So we say Matthias came early because Holly was uh, priming the pump and getting it going. And then, then uh, the backstory, story, uh, no, the post story, I guess, is that there was a shower planned, a baby shower planned for Emily this coming Saturday at our house. And so all you ladies are invited to come to our house for a shower, but now it's a wipes and diaper shower uh, because the baby's already here. So you're welcome to come and see the announcement, and there'll be more information coming out. So I'd invite you to, to pray with me if you would. Father, we are so blessed to see that children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. We give you praise and thanks for that. Uh, we rejoice with the Wallers and their first child and give you praise. And we come to worship you in spirit and in truth and ask that as we open your word, that you would open our hearts, that we might behold, as the psalmist prayed, wonderful things from your law, not just to inform us, Father, but we pray that through these truths our lives might be transformed, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. And we pray that your word would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. In track and field, at least for me, some of the most exciting events are relay events. And in the relays, the baton is passed from one runner to the next. And uh, the success of that whole event depends upon an effective exchange. You don't even have to have the fastest people on the teams, but if you can't get the baton from one person to the other as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible, you don't stand a chance to win. It's interesting because in a, in a relay race, the one who's passing the baton is everybody's eyes are focused on that exchange. And once the person passes the baton, that person falls off into insignificance and all the eyes are glued on the person who received the baton. As we come to the text this morning in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, we see that John the Baptist, the greatest among men, as he was declared to be by Jesus, is carrying the baton, has been carrying the baton of God's truth, announcing the coming of the Messiah. And in the baptism of Jesus, he passes the baton. The message and ministry of Jesus is passed to the person of Jesus. This message of God, the redemptive plan of God is now passed to Jesus. And John moves into obscurity while Jesus comes into the limelight. limelight. John has been running his lap in front of everybody, announcing that Jesus is coming. But when he passes the baton, he falls into obscurity and Jesus comes into the limelight and he's the focus of what's going on in the text. The birth of the king, the pronouncement that he's coming, the protection of the king, and the identification of the king through the prophetic announcements in chapters 1 and 2 has been already laid out for us. Then in chapter 3, we saw that here's John. <laughs> he's running his lap, and he's announcing that Jesus, the Messiah, is coming. And now, as we move into the end of the chapter, we see that the baton has been passed from the messenger to the Messiah. 
the one who's now carrying the baton of the truth of God's word. And so in the passing of this baton, Jesus' baptism serves two important functions that further authenticate him as the Messiah, his ministry and his identity, and I think serve to motivate us to respond appropriately to it. So if you have your Bibles or you have your phone and you have a Bible app on it or some other device or you want to reach under the seat in front of you and pull out the Bible, the page number is listed in the bulletin on the outline. I'm going to read the text of Matthew chapter 3 beginning with verse 13 through verse 17 and then we'll look at these two important functions that the baptism of Jesus serves. First of all, the text, Matthew chapter 3 beginning with verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have, no, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him, and after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In verses 13 through 15, we see, first of all, the inauguration of our Lord's earthly ministry, the the introduction to Jesus as the the Messiah and his earthly ministry. And I want you to look with me and consider three facts that are found in the text. First of all, we see that Jesus desired to be baptized. It was his desire. Notice the word arrived in verse 13. At least that's how the New American Standard translated it. Jesus arrived. This is the same Greek word that was used in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, and in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In, verse, in chapter 2, it was the Magi, the wise men, were arriving, and in chapter 3, it was John the Baptist who was arriving, and it signifies a formal arrival, a proper arrival, something that is to be noted. Well, this week in Miami, I think it's in Miami, the, the Kansas City Chiefs had their formal arrival, because, and so did the San Francisco 49ers. They're playing in the Super Bowl, so they arrived on the scene. But unlike the Kansas City Chiefs and the 49ers, Jesus' arrival was unannounced. It was not with fanfare. It was not with all kinds of extravagance and no press were there. Jesus just showed up on the scene. In fact, John 1.28 tells us that he came from Nazareth. Nazareth, lazy little town in Galilee where Jesus grew up and learned to be a master carpenter. And that's what we know. And except for a little glimpse story about when Jesus was 12 and he stayed behind at the Passover feast and was teaching the rabbis in the temple, we know very little about Jesus' first 30 years of his life. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, we have, a, I think, a slide that shows that, that text, but it says basically a summary of Jesus' life up to age 30. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. 
That's what we know about the person of Jesus. But in the fullness of time, God moved Jesus to come from uh, Galilee and Nazareth to Judea. And now at age 30, he appears at the Jordan to launch his ministry that John had been heralding. And I often think about that, you know. So what about the first 30 years of Jesus' life? Well, we don't know too much. So was the first 30 years of Jesus' life irrelevant? Was it unimportant? Insignificant? I don't think so. The inauguration of Jesus at age 30 should not diminish the importance of his life up to that point. And I think there's an aside here that is more of an implication from the text, but I don't think it's irrelevant, and that is that Neither is your life or my life and the activity of our life insignificant at any one point. It's just different. That God has value and worth in all that we do and all that we are at every point and stage of our life for His glory and the gain of His kingdom. See, our work, our activity is equal, equally uh, to God and equally capable of being honoring to God at every stage and at every phase, our, our work, our activity honors God because, you know what? I ask you this question. Did God ask human beings to work before the fall of man or after the fall of man? Another way of asking it is, is work part of the curse or is work part of our creation? We're created in the image of God. And in the image of God, he created us to fill, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Activity, work. That's part of who we are. So any point in our life in which we're involved in activity that reflects the glory of God is to bring honor to him and his worship. So, For Jesus, the first 30 years of his life was not a waste. And for you and me, wherever we're at, whatever age, stage, or function of our life is not insignificant before God. It has worth. It has value. It's it's how we reflect the glory of God. It's how we reflect the purpose of God in our life. I don't know about you, but that should be encouraging. There should be no, well, only if you're doing vocational Christian ministry, you know, that that's somehow elevated as more significant in honoring and glorifying God than something else. No. Now, you know, we can be knuckleheads in ministry and we can be knuckleheads in every other activity that we do, but it doesn't matter whether you're a student or whether you're a housekeeper, whether you are a childcare worker, whether you teach school, or whether you're a doctor or a lawyer, or whether you're an insurance salesman or an accountant, or whatever it is that you do, whether you're a carpenter or a painter, or whatever it is that we do, that has value and worth before God if we do it for the glory of God. So that's, an, that's to me, an important aspect of the, the looking at Jesus. Oh, God, the only thing that mattered in Jesus is after he's age 30. No. That's, the mo- that's what we know about, but that's not all that's significant. Now we see verse 13, that the express purpose for which Jesus came to John was to be baptized. 
You know, when you see in the text, it says, in, to be baptized, it's in order to be. This is the purpose for which Jesus came to John, was to be baptized. He wanted to publicly identify himself with the rest of humanity. To embrace their humility, to embrace their shame, even though he was ready to enter the kingdom of God. Last week, Bob talked about John the Baptist baptizing and that he was baptizing with repentance so that those who weren't ready, you can't get into the kingdom without repentance. Well, Jesus didn't need to repent, but he came to identify with those who would and to show people that he would enter their shame. Some of you have seen the TV show Undercover Boss. Uh, It's a show where major corporate CEOs you kind of disguise themselves, you know. They, they grow facial hair and they grow a wig, put a wig or whatever. And then they go down and then they work with the regular workers that are part of their corporation. You know, what, how big the corporation is. They, they are to be honored because of their position and their power, but they, they identify with the shame of their everyday workers. Well, in a sense, that's what Jesus was doing. He was coming to uh, embrace this Shame. And then we see not only that Jesus desired it, but we see that John resisted it in verse 14. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. Why was John reluctant to baptize Jesus? You say, well, it's pretty obvious, Pastor Steve, why he was reluctant to baptize Jesus. Well, is it really? Yeah, I guess it is in some ways, but uh, the people who were coming to John were confessing their sins. And I think John was fully aware that Jesus was born miraculously, that Jesus had a mastery of the Word of God. In fact, it was John in John chapter 129 who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But it also says something interesting in John chapter 1, verses 31 through 34, that John did not recognize him. I don't think he recognized him as the Messiah. I don't think he fully recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. But he knew that he was coming, Jesus was coming to him, and that John was sinful and wicked, and so that that Jesus was not in any way like him, sinful and wicked, so that his baptism, John's baptism, was totally unbefitting of Jesus. And so he said, "I'm, I'm I'm not the one who needs to be baptizing him. He needs to be baptizing me. Interesting that John had forbidden the religious leaders, if you look earlier in chapter 3, he'd he'd forbidden the religious leaders to be baptized because they didn't repent. And now he forbids Jesus to be baptized because he wasn't wicked. I have a good friend who who, who is a mentor in ministry, and there was one point, and he came to me and he said, can you give me some advice? Can you give me some help with this? And I went, you're asking me? I mean, I'm the one who should be asking you for advice and input. Jesus came to John and he said, will you, will you baptize me? And I think John realized, I'm, I'm out of my league here. I shouldn't be baptizing him. But then we see that the Father required Jesus' baptism. 
He says, Jesus said in verse 15, permit it at this time. Which interesting, isn't it? Permit it at this time. So it's not like, I mean, I think this is a statement of Jesus validating John's reluctance. He's saying, yeah, you really do need to be baptized by me, but let's just go through with this for right now. Okay? Permit it at this time. Let it happen the way it's supposed to happen. At this point in redemptive history, the roles needed to be reversed. And why is that so? The text tells us why it's so. Look at verse 15. To fulfill all righteousness. This has to happen. To fulfill, it is God's will. That is what righteousness is. Is God's will. Whatever God wills and wants, that is completely righteous. So in order to fulfill God's will, both of these men needed to be obedient. John needed to baptize Jesus, and Jesus needed to be baptized by John to fulfill what God's plan was. So John realized it was fitting, and he went through with it. And I think that there's at least three results of Jesus' obedience here. First of all, when Jesus was baptized by John, he validated that baptism to repentance was a thing that all humanity needed to go through even though he wasn't sinful. He submitted to it to show that this was necessary for the people that he he was numbered among, that they would be baptized. The next step in God's redemptive plan was, and I will quote what John MacArthur and D.A. Carson say about this, he who had no sin, that's Jesus, took his place among those who had no righteousness. He who had no sin took his place. He identified with them by going down into the waters of baptism, which they entered into in repentance, but he didn't enter into it in repentance, but as one of them who understood that there was a need for repentance. Not his, but theirs. And secondly, D.A. Carson says, yet he, John, must now, at this point in salvation history, baptize Jesus For at this point, Jesus must demonstrate his willingness to take on his servant role, entailing his identification with the people. He went down into the water. That's why we baptize. That's why we get all wet when we baptize people. Because Jesus went into the water, and there was much water there in Bethany, where, where in Aeon, where John was baptizing in Salim. That's why there was much water. You don't need much water to kind of, you know, just sprinkle people. So that's why we believe that it's, it's, you get all wet. The sinless Son of God humbly took his place among sinners, and he identified with sin and the need for repentance. Secondly, Jesus modeled humble and heartfelt obedience. Humble and heartfelt obedience to the Father's will. The Father's will is all righteousness. And Jesus demonstrated not just duty, Jesus wasn't there just being dutiful. He was demonstrating humble and heartfelt obedience. And you know what? As we go into chapter 4, we see another manifestation of his humble, heartfelt obedience as he resists the temptations three times. And we see it again at the cross. Jesus in Matthew 26 will pray, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will. Humble. Heartfelt obedience. I have a a friend of mine who has been with, gone on a short-term mission trip with the same mission agency every year since 1998. 
And every year you go on the mission trip with this particular agency, you're required to go to a weekend of training. I mean, he could probably recite the thing in his sleep. But he goes every year in humble, heartfelt obedience because that's what's required of him. And I say to you this morning, in humble, heartfelt obedience, where is it that you and I are reluctant to surrender to what God is asking us to obediently follow through on? Where is it that you and I struggle to trust and obey? Is it our sacrificial love for our spouse? Is it surrender to my station in life right now? Wherever it is I'm at, whatever God wants to use me in, however God wants to use me, I'm willing to do that. Is it submission to my parents as a young person? Am I willing to heartfelt and humbly obey my parents as God's caregivers? Am I harboring bitterness? Is there a forgiveness that needs to be extended to someone because that's what God calls me to do? Is there an enemy that God's calling me to love? Is there giving of my time? Is there giving of my, my talent or, or my finances that God is calling me to be obedient? Is there a good work that God is calling me to do so that I can build goodwill? Or is there good news that I need to be sharing with someone and I'm just reluctant to actually open my mouth? God's calling me to humble obedience. Think about Jesus. He's the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, and He was willing to go down and be humiliated by being baptized with a baptism that everybody identified with as being for repentance, even though He had nothing to repent of. It's the inauguration of His earthly ministry. And in verses 16 and 17, we see the confirmation of his identity. And there are two results of baptism that confirm him as the Messiah. The King of Israel, the Lord of the nations. He's not just the Lord of the Jews, he's the Lord of the nations. He is our Savior and our King. First, the anointing by the Holy Spirit. Notice it says in verse 16, And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. Well, he came up out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. Uh, Dave Turner, in his commentary, says this is an attesting event. It's like, oh, something big's happening here. It's like Ezekiel chapter 1. The heavens opened, and Ezekiel saw this vision. It's uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 56, and Stephen saw the heavens opened. So something big is going on here. And he saw. Who saw? Who saw the, the, the Spirit of God descending? Well, Jesus did. But we also know that John did. Because in John chapter 1, we, we say, John says, he saw the Spirit of God descending in bodily form. That's what Luke says. As a dove. And this confirmed that Jesus is the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus would be, he is the Son of God. That's what, if you look at John chapter 1, uh, verses 33 and 34. John 1, 33 and 34, it says, And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water 
said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Okay, now he knows because he's seen him and he is the Son of God. And the descent of the Spirit accomplishes a few things. It reveals a few things. It's important. Why? Because the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus did not impart deity. Okay, don't get this wrong. In, as Bob talked about the baptism in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, when believers are baptized, when, this, when we become a Christian, we're baptized into the, in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God comes to dwell within us. We become a believer. That's not what happened here. This is a different baptism. Bob talked about four baptisms. This is another one. Jesus' baptism is completely different. He received the Spirit of God that would empower him in his earthly ministry, in his humanities, fully God, fully man. So the Spirit of God anointed him, first of all, anointed him, and second of all, empowered him so that he could carry on his earthly ministry, giving him power to do that. If you looked at Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. This is a prophecy that is fulfilled in Jesus as the Spirit of God came to descend and dwell upon him to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. If you look at the text, which is interesting because if you go to Luke chapter 4, you see this verse 18 is the very passage that Jesus read when he opened the Isaiah scroll to the people. And almost the emphasis of the passage is that Jesus is proclaiming. Well, the baton has been passed, right? The message, the truth of God's word has been passed. And so what is Jesus' primary ministry? Proclamation of the truth. And he, it's fulfilled in here in Jesus, who the Spirit of God descends, confirming that he is the one who's been anointed and empowered. Secondly, the descent of the Spirit must be understood in light of verse 17. What is verse 17? I'm well pleased with him. And in conjunction with Isaiah 42. So if you look at Isaiah 42, verses one, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I upheld, my chosen one in whom, what is it? My soul delights. God speaking, my soul delights. What does it say in Isaiah, or Matthew chapter seven, 3, verse 17? With whom I'm well pleased. My soul delights in him. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is the suffering servant of Isaiah. Isaiah chapters 42 through 66 speak of this suffering servant, the Messiah. You say, well, I know, but you're going back into the Old Testament and all this. Stuff. Who is Matthew writing to? Jewish believers who are struggling to maintain their perspective on who Jesus is and how Jesus has lived and what that means to them. He is the Messiah. So he's drawing upon all of their historical accuracy of the books of the Old Testament to confirm that Jesus is the Messiah. He's a suffering servant. And thirdly, the Spirit of God descended, it says in verse 16, and John says, remained upon him in John 1.32. Well, that brings to mind Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. In Isaiah chapter 11, and then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Well, 
this revealing that Jesus, the Spirit of God descended upon him. It says that he came down, and then you connect this verse in Isaiah chapter 1, revealing that Jesus is the root of Jesse. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, verse 6 and 7. Talks about the, the king, and he, his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, he is the root, the branch of David, the root of David, who is the branch. He becomes our righteousness. He is our righteousness. So you have that root of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. Okay, that's the, the connection there. The root of Jesse means that somehow he's connected to David, which Jesus is. If we looked at Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is the root of Jesse that is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And if you jump forward into Revelation, which we did, it's interesting, in the first service because uh, we were like all over this place. And I was kind of refraining myself from jumping up and saying, yeah, 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 this is where it connects. Because in Isaiah chapter 5, John is talking, again, John is talking about Jesus, this Jesus, who is the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, who is the Lamb. And then it says in Revelation chapter 5, the, the, the Lion the, of Judah, the Root of David, which is the Root of Jesse, connects us with Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and verse 10. That's the guy. Jesus, this Jesus is the root of Jesse. He is the root of David. He is the lion, and the lion is the lamb, the lamb who was slain. And verse 9, what did he do? He purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Do you understand that this Jesus is the Messiah? The anointing of the Spirit of God coming upon him proved that he is empowered for ministry. That he is identified as the Messiah, the King of Israel. I brought my passport to church today. Okay. This passport does not prove, does not make me a citizen of the United States. This passport does not make me a citizen of the United States. But it empowers me to travel everywhere in the world as a citizen of the United States. And it identifies me as a citizen of the United States. doesn't make me one. When the Spirit of God came upon Jesus, he empowered him for ministry in his humanity, and they identified him clearly as the promised Messiah, the suffering servant, the one who would die on the cross whose blood would be shed so that he would, as was prophesied and said of him, save his people from their sins. That's Jesus. Then we see the announcement of the Father. Exposes two important things. First of all, in verse 17, we see the presence of God's voice. Behold, a voice out of heaven. That must have been something. Can you imagine that? Just like all of a sudden God speaks. Hello down there. I mean, this is not, you know, Jim Carrey and some sort of a crazy movie. This is the real thing. God's voice declaring that this is his son. Attesting. This is another attesting event. I heard that there were people at the airport on Thursday night 
waiting for Air Force One to arrive, and they would announce and attest and testify that Air Force One had come. I didn't hear them or see them. I just heard that they were there. They're attesting to it. 400 years, God had been silent. No prophet until John. No word from God. 400 years, and then the silence is broken. And God bursts on the scene. And I find it interesting that here we have, in the baptism of Jesus, each person of the Trinity taking part in confirming his identity. Jesus demeaning himself and submitting to baptism. We have the Spirit of God descending, anointing and confirming. And then we have the Father declaring, this is my Son. This is my son. Now look at the particulars of it in the end of verse 17. He says, this is. Um, pronouns matter. This is. This particular individual person upon whom the Spirit of God descends is. This one, particularly, is Jesus. This Jesus. Unmistakable reference to Jesus. My beloved, my beloved. It's a term of endearment, a term of affection. He's my beloved son. And then he is my son. And again, don't, I'm going to say some things. I hope you can hold on with me here for a minute. But he says, my son. There's freight in that statement. And it brings to light the Old Testament passages where Israel and David are referred to as sons of God. And it invests those references to Israel and David's descendant, like, for example, in Psalm 2, verse 7, and Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 19, and Acts chapter 4, verse, or Exodus 4, 22, and then in 2 Samuel chapter 7. With fuller meaning because Jesus becomes the ultimate fulfillment as the Son of God. He becomes the Son of Israel. He becomes the Son of David in fulfillment of the Old Testament covenantal promises. He is the Son representing the nation and the Son who is the King. My parents spend some time in Arizona in the wintertime and they live in this retirement community, and I've been there to visit them, and they have a, a, a clubhouse or whatever, and you can go there and use their exercise room and their swimming pool, and they have a wood shop, and they have a library and all this stuff. So I'm down there, and I can walk in, and, and I say, well, I'm, you know, Morris Smith's son. And they kind of look at me like, well, anybody off the street could say that. You know, pick a name and say you're so-and-so and so-and-so. But if my dad walks in with me and he says, this is my son. Then they go, oh, okay, yeah, we agree. Did not Jesus say he is the son of God? Yes, he did. Tell me plainly, Pilate, are you the son of God? It is as you say. In John chapter 5, verse 18, he was crucified because he called God his Father, making him equal with God. He called God his Father. He said he was God's Son. But now the Father is saying, that's my boy. That one right there. He's my boy. That's my son. In only one of three instances. This is one of three. There's only three times when God broke the silence. 
And the first one is here at his baptism. The second one is at the transfiguration. In Mark chapter 9. And then the crucifixion. In John chapter 12. Our son played basketball in high school and uh, his team was playing in a, a district final game. Okay? And uh, playing against the fourth ranked team in the state. And the game was tied and our coach, we had the ball, our coach called timeout with 10 seconds left to go in the game. And then we got back on the, field, on the court and, and they threw a pass into my son who was a point guard and my son got the ball on the other part of the court and he immediately dribbled it down, penetrating into the lane on our side and his defender, he had lost his defender so his defender was trailing after him and the defense collapsed on my son and my son bounced past it to our center who was crashing towards the basket, laid it up for a, for a layup with 1.7 seconds to go, we were ahead 40 to 38. We end up winning the game and going on to play in the substate. And I said, in my heart, I didn't stand up at the game, but I was saying in my heart, that's my boy. That's my boy. The day my son graduated from law school, we were, after the law school graduation, we were going to, out to eat and we were eating at a restaurant and we met someone at the restaurant, I didn't know who this person was, and this person was a special needs person. And my son had been spending time with this special needs person consistently throughout his time in college and went up to him and they took their picture with him and this, that's my mom and dad, that's not the special needs person, but that's my mom and dad. <laughs> but, but after the graduation, and I, and I internally, I just kind of went, that's my son. Because he had spent time with this special needs person all through, high, all through college. You know, taking time out of his college. He's a, he was a date. He's been a date for special needs kids at the uh, night to shine at one of the local churches that has a date night, like a prom night for special needs kids. And he, he, he goes out. He's married, but he goes as a date for some of these special needs girls. That's my boy. Jesus is God's son. He says, that's my boy. Do you need any further confirmation that this is an important person? It's the, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. This is Jesus. The Father declares so much about him that Jesus is the Messiah of the line of David. That he's divine. My son, that means he's God. You better listen to him. He's a suffering servant of Isaiah. Jesus is identified as the Messiah, the Lord of all. Now, we live in Iowa, right? So uh, we ha every four years we have this caucus thing. And uh, it's kind of an annoyance to those of us who live here, kind of. It's kind of an you know, enamoring thing to other people. But every four years we have a bunch of people telling us why we should support them and why we should follow after them and why we should elect them. And we don't even know these people. And yet we go out and we, we, we support one, one of them and then we expect that for an uncertain future. And my question is, if we're willing to give our allegiance and our support to a people we have really don't know at all, how much more would we or should we be willing to give our allegiance and follow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our Savior, Jesus Christ? 
What we believe about the coronavirus will affect our behavior. How many of you are buying tickets to China? Airplane tickets to China. What you believe about the coronavirus impacts how you conduct yourself. What we believe about Jesus should make a difference in how we live our lives. The evidence is overwhelming that he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And then the question becomes, okay, so is he to us? Who is he to us? He is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And I'm here to argue that he is Lord of all. But the question is, is he Lord of all of me? Is he Lord of all of you? Is he Lord over everything in my life? He's the Savior. He's the King. He's the Lord of everything. And for unbelievers, if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ and his death alone and that for the payment for your sin and understand that he died for you, then my question to you is the same question that was asked this week at the funerals of Kobe Bryant and his daughter and the seven other people that lost their lives. What a tragedy. But what hope. What a reality check to our own frailty. What a reality check to our own temporalness. And what hope is there? Well, this Jesus gives us hope. Jesus reminds us that there is permanence and purposeful life if we understand that we are sinful people, like all the people that went to John to be baptized, that we need to repent, to turn from our sin, and to trust in this Jesus, because if we don't turn, we will be punished for our wickedness. That's God's righteousness pours out his wrath on evil. But would Jesus died in our place so that all who would put their trust in him would be forgiven and have the promise of eternal life, this meaningful and purposeful life. And we must personally turn and trust. Have you done that? Have you personally accepted Christ's death as the payment you deserve so that you could live a purposeful and permanent life? If you haven't, my challenge to you is to trust him today. As Paul says, today is the day of salvation. There's no better day than today to trust him. And if you know Jesus, then the issue is of, not of salvation, but of sanctification. Where in my life am I failing to follow Jesus' model of humble and heartfelt obedience? I was so blessed the other day to hear somebody telling a story about somebody that they had had an interaction with in a, in a business place. And I, I'm not going to go into details because hopefully someday I'll, that person will share that story. And they, they were like, oh, I knew I should have done something. I, I knew that God wanted me to, to speak to this person or do something for this person, but I didn't do it. And so I left, and then I felt like, okay, i got to do it. And so they went, and they, they got something, and they went back to the place. They sat outside for a minute thinking, what am I going to say? What am I, I'm, I, can't, I don't have a reason to go in now because I've done my business with them. But I, I really feel like, I, so they did. They went back in, and they presented this person with a gift that was Christian overtones, obviously, and had a good conversation with the person. I thought, there's surrender. 
There's submission. There's excitement. I just praise God that he's so gracious that he, he gives us opportunities. And when we miss the opportunities, then he gives us other opportunities to trust him. So I ask you this morning, where is it that you're failing to, to really surrender to Jesus? Are there relationships that are askew, that need to be mended? Is there a person you need to talk to? A family member you need to get right with? Is there some person you need to speak more boldly about Jesus to? Maybe it's helping out with serving the Lord in some capacity that you've just heard about and now you're going to take action. I don't know what it is, but God calls us to surrender. And Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what God calls us to do, is to live for him who died and rose again on our behalf. And as we break bread and as we share the cup today, what we do is we remember that Jesus in his humiliation was baptized so that he got identified with us as fallen human beings. But the ultimate and final demonstration of his humble, heartfelt obedience was dying on the cross so that his body was broken and his blood was shed, so that all who believe could have forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. And those who are trusting in Jesus should reflect upon what he's done, should rejoice in what he's done, should recommit to live for him. And those who don't know Jesus should repent, believe, and live. And I invite you, if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to join with us in partaking of these elements of communion. But do so only after you've had time to get your heart right with God. Had time to reflect and rejoice in what God has done. And then come and take it as a demonstration and a celebration and as a proclamation of your faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for your son. I pray that his example would motivate us and encourage us. And if anyone here doesn't know Jesus, they'd come to know you as their Lord and Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm reminded of the verse from Romans 8 uh, that says that we can cry out to him. He is our father. We have become uh, adopted sons um, because of the Holy Spirit, and we cry to him, Abba, Father. And just how awesome that this relationship that we can be brought into as co-heirs with Christ and, and part of God's family is just an amazing thing. So let's just uh, prepare hearts to take the bread and the cup.